Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Scott Malone. I'm a Reuters Boston Bureau Chief, and I'm also your moderator today. Uh, we're here to discuss public and private sector responses to climate change. Uh, we have a great panel of guests. Starting from my immediate right, we have Gina McCarthy, former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Then Aaron Bernstein, um, associate director at the Center for Health and Global Environment here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And then Ann Klee, who is vice president for the Environment, Health, and Safety at General Electric. And joining us remotely, we have Jay Inslee, Governor of the State of Washington, and Karen Smith, Director and State Public Health Officer at the California Department of Public Health. Uh, this event is presented jointly with Reuters, and we're streaming live on the websites of the forum and on Reuters, as well as on Facebook. Uh, this program will include a brief Q&A, and you can feel free, if you're watching at home, to email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard. Edu. Uh, you can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. Um, now, citing numerous reasons, the Trump administration is seeking a rollback of a number of environmental rules. This week, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt announced an, an intention to repeal the Clean Power Plan, which was meant to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In June, President <coughs> Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. However, states and corporations have stepped in. Let's take a look at this clip from Reuters Television. California Governor Jerry Brown is heading to China with a clear message to the international community. U.S. President Donald Trump does not speak for several U.S. states when it comes to climate change. This group is completely committed to meeting the Paris Agreement. We are committed in even going further. Trump on Thursday said he would pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement, saying a push to reduce carbon emissions could threaten millions of jobs. But Governor Brown believes the opposite is true, saying that Trump's decision effectively clears the way for China to lead the renewable energy economy. Ann Carlson, a professor of environmental law at UCLA, says California's efforts to lead the climate fight is a step in the right direction. I think it's important for California to be out front. I think it's important for every other state that's willing to do so to say, we believe in climate change. We believe we have an obligation to reduce our emissions. I think it takes some of the sting out of the Trump administration's reneging on the Paris Agreement. Not all of it by any means, but it does take some of it out. We can meet the carbon goals, the greenhouse gas emission goals of the Paris Agreement if we just continue to close down coal plants, build wind turbines, put up solar, and increase energy efficiency in communities and create jobs doing that. So it's up to communities and the states to continue the progress that President Trump seems determined to halt. That's Bill Corcoran from climate advocacy group, the Sierra Club. He and others hope a state-level movement to cap greenhouse gases and carbon emissions will prove to the world that when it comes to the environment, the United States could still lead the way. Okay, Gina. You led the uh, US EPA before stepping down this January. Where do we stand in terms of addressing climate change? 
Oh, we're in deep. Tr no, I won't. I won't go down that road. Yet. <laughs> uh, uh, let me just say that that I do recognize that we are in very uncertain times for I think for all of us, uh, and it's very hard. It's discouraging to have continued conversations about denial of of climate science and to talk about the many rollbacks. It seems anything we did is being considered. Uh, to be something that needs to be rolled back. But you know, we don't live in the Beltway. <laughs> Not everybody does. And oftentimes the Beltway is a little bit fact-free, shall we say. So we live in the real world. And today is about looking at what's actually happening in the real world. And we know that climate change is real. Uh, we know that it poses a significant threat to our public health, to our economy, to the safety of our communities, our national security, and frankly, to our kids' future. And so we, we have to take action and not simply worry about the uncertainty that we're facing in Washington, because the United States isn't just about what's happening in Washington. It's about all of us and all of our commitment. And I know that when we look at the rollbacks, not, no one can be as annoyed at, about this as I. And if I'm not going to get discouraged, nobody else has a right to get discouraged. <laughs> and honestly, it takes a rule to undo a rule. And I'm confident that we did the outreach we needed to do. We based it on science and the law, and they are going to stick. And in any case, they've underpinned the way the world is heading, and that's not going to change. We have clean energy today. It's built into the market. That's what's going to dictate the continued progress <laughs> moving forward. And no one individual, no matter what office you hold, is going to make that change. And I'm not just talking about in the utility sector. I'm also talking about in the transportation sector. You know, when you have other countries talking like the EU and China banning the internal combustion engine and GE coming back after a visit and saying, you know, they have a point, then change is going to happen here as well. So I'll just leave you with three thoughts. One is you need to remember that the work we did in the environment, and make no mistake, clean air and clean water and climate change is a nonpartisan issue. We cannot afford to put it in buckets. Everybody needs a safe world, as well as clean water to drink, a safe place to live in good air to breathe. And the second thing is that, as I've said, Washington is not where it's at. Not now, and it may not be for a while. And so we need to recognize that it's where cities and states are doing right now. When the federal government is asleep, they're stepping up in the business community. So we are moving forward. And the last thing I will say is that if you remember correctly, environmental protection was built from the grassroots up. It matters what's happening and what people will cover today, because that's what the United States is all about. We know what we value. We know what our core values are. And we are going to stick together. And we are going to make progress, no matter what happens or doesn't happen within the Beltway. So thanks very much. Great. Ari, um, some groups, including some people in the federal government, um, are unconvinced of the links between climate change and man-made choices. Um, what can you tell us about the science behind climate change and how the climate affects health, human health? Well, I suppose you can <clears throat> choose to believe that gravity doesn't exist, but if you walk off a cliff, you're probably still going to fall. And that's sort of where we're at with climate change. I mean, you can choose to believe that climate change isn't being driven by human uh, activities and the release of greenhouse gases, but it, it's real. And, and, you know, that's nothing new. Scientists have said for over 100 years that if you put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, planet's going to warm. We're seeing that now. We're seeing the consequences of that now. Uh, 
you know, the, the short of the scientific understanding of the connection between climate and health is that it's public health enemy number one. I mean, there's really no piece of what makes a human being healthy that isn't touched by climate change. Food, water, security, infections, all this stuff is, is in play. And, you know, as difficult as uh, an understanding that is, the opposite is also uh, important to recognize, which is that if we do what we need to do to address this problem, we'll probably have attained the biggest public health victory ever. I mean, bigger than vaccines, bigger than sanitation. Um, and, you know, looking at the clean power plan is a good example of that. The science tells us, including science done here at the Chan School, the clean power plan was set to save about 3,500 American lives every year. Uh, the benefits outweighed the cost by $33 billion. So now that it's perhaps not going to take place, what does that mean? Well, there's actually an analysis we just put out. Um, folks here at the Chan School, at Harvard, um, at Syracuse got together and looked at this and found that um, the new plan by EPA would increase air pollution uh, in many states, particularly Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, and Texas. It would increase mortality, deaths, in 17 states, the most affected being Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Texas. The new EPA plan would do nothing to address greenhouse gases. So in short, the science tells us that the EPA's new plan is not only worse than the Clean Power Plan, it's worse than doing nothing at all. Uh, and I think it's important for people to understand that, that we're talking, you know, these actions have, a, you know, to deal with greenhouse gases have long-term benefits. They're going to address the extreme weather events we're seeing. They're going to curtail sea level rise. But they have immediate effects that benefit people in their communities where these changes could take place. Great. Okay. I'm now going to bring it to uh, Governor Jay Inslee, uh, who's joining us from Washington. Uh, Governor Inslee, uh, you've been outspoken about the need to address climate change. What are your thoughts? Here's my message from Washington State, uh, a couple facts. One, uh, we have made clear to the world that we're moving forward with or without the federal government. Uh, within 36 hours of the president pulling us out of the Paris Agreement, Governor Brown, Governor Cuomo of New York, and myself, we'd stood up the United States Climate Alliance. This is an alliance of 15 states who've committed to meet our Paris goals, who are committed to growing our economies and are doing just that while defeating climate change. And this is, a, I think, not a small thing because these 15 states represent 40% of the United States economy. If we were a country, and I'm not proposing we are or should be right now, we would be, we would be the third largest economy in the world today. So you can say with this United States Climate Alliance that the world's third largest economy is moving forward uh, with Paris to defeat climate change with the rest of the world. And the beauty of this effort is that Donald Trump cannot stop us. He cannot stop me from my executive order, which has put a cap on carbon pollution through an executive action in my state. He cannot stop our Clean Energy Research Fund. He cannot stop our incentive program to help people buy solar power and electric cars. He cannot stop our state action. We are moving forward. The second point I would make is the states that are doing this have demonstrated that economic growth goes hand in hand with defeating climate change. Uh, we've been very vigorous in our effort to reduce carbon pollution, and we have the best economy in the United States, according to CNBC. We have a GDP growth that is twice the national average. Solar uh, jobs in the solar industry are growing 17 times faster than the rest of the US economy. 
So I think the message from the states are, number one, we cannot be stopped in mission, and it is a, a noble mission. And second, we're growing our economies like crazy when you embrace these new technologies. So uh, we haven't slowed down at all. And if you want to see what works, come to California and Washington State. It's not just a good place to vacation. It's a good place to start a, a clean energy business. <laughs> Great. Okay. So at this point in our discussion, we've heard from the political, the policy, and the scientific arenas. Let's now bring it over to you, Anne Klein, and give us a bit of perspective from corporate America. Uh, so I'd make three points, and, and really picking up on, on what the governor just said and, and what Gina started with, uh, which is the business community is moving beyond the policy debate. Um, at GE, we believe that climate change is real. We believe it's a global problem, a global challenge that, that really should be addressed globally. But regardless of what the policy changes are in D.C. today, um, I think the vast majority of businesses out there globally, and many of them are customers, so we see this, um, are beyond the policy. They want long-term certainty. They want um, the technologies either for power generation or transportation that are clean, that reduce their emissions, that are reliable, that give them security, that reduce their costs. And so as a major technology provider, um, we do it, you know, we, we invest in those technologies, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because our customers demand it globally. Um, they're not asking to go back to the technologies of the 80s and 90s. They want the technologies that are going to take them into 2030, 2040, 2050, 2075. So we're investing in those technologies. So I would say climate change is real. The vast majority of the business community globally believes it and is beyond the policy debate and is prepared to be part of the solution along with the states and cities in the United States that I think are really at the forefront at this point. Um, and then the last point that I'd make is, you know, because we're here in Boston, it seems like a good example, but, but we're walking the walk. So we're developing our new headquarters. We're right on the Fort Point Channel. You think about a city that needs to think about climate change and resilience, and we're building that into how we think about our new headquarters. So whether it's providing um, some of the energy that we're going to need with a giant solar veil, or thinking about resilience and sea change uh, level changes in, in sea, sea levels. So we're raising the first floor of our buildings. But all of us not only have to think about, you know, what do we do from a technology and investment perspective to address climate change, but how do we think about resilience over the next decades? Thanks, Ann Clay. Okay, and with that, we'll go back to the West Coast, uh, this time a little further south to California, where we'll speak to Karen Smith. Uh, Karen, your office is responsible for the state's public health. You work closely with Governor Brown's office, and we heard in the clip earlier that he is taking steps to address climate change. Um, tell us about some of your state's efforts. Sure. So um, in California, we have been experiencing the health impacts of uh, global warming for decades, in particular increasing um, pollutants and worsening air quality with the related cardiovascular and respiratory disease increases. More recently, we have seen the impacts of the more, more frequent uh, climate events in um, worse flooding than we've ever had. Recently, I'm sorry, we seem to have lost power for some reason. Hopefully not a climate-related <laughs> event. <laughs> 
Okay, well, we lost uh, Karen, oh, no. but we'll come back to her, I'm, I'm sure. I'm back. Oh, there we go. Sorry. <laughs> Climate sensitive light motion sensors. So they went out. I just have to wave. So, um, At any rate, uh, I think some of the most profound effects on, on health that we're seeing in California have to do with the impacts of these kinds of severe climate events. Our four-year drought, a tremendous um, impacts on individuals who often lost jobs, lost their livings, their houses, and displaced the economy with and, and still um, has been uh, having a slow recovery in parts of the state hit. And even um, today, I think you probably are aware that we're having some really uh, catastrophic fires on right now in the Bay Area and uh, Northern California. And these are a direct result of that prolonged drought with the drought of the, um, the forests in the area. So, um, California has been tackling air pollution for decades, and the state began adopting climate action policies um, for real about 15 years ago, with a focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the state has very ambitious climate action goals, including an overall target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 40% below 1990 level by 2030, 80% by 2050. And as Governor Inslee mentioned, on the road to achieving these goals so far, we have experienced tremendous growth in jobs and the economy. Achieving these goals is going to involve really increasing uh, even more than we have re renewable energy sources, building more efficient homes and offices, obviously reducing petroleum use, but we're also making a big push to get more electric vehicles on the road. On the road. A big component of California's strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is the cap and trade program, which is a market-based program that gives industry incentives to reduce pollution. The proceeds from that market are then invested in our community statewide with an emphasis on communities that are disproportionately affected by pollution sources. The funding goes out through initiatives for everything from preserving open space, funds improvements for homes. We've expanded affordable housing, boosted public transportation, helped Californians buy zero emission vehicles. Great. So that's, that's a lot of specifics there, Karen. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And, uh, and really gets us very nicely into the next area we are heading to, which is, which is some of the specific actions that both the public and private sectors can take, you know, how to address it, and you know, for people who are, who are concerned, what they can do themselves and their businesses, their communities, their governments. Um, Gina, we'll start with you. Why don't you talk a little bit about the you know, people who want to, want to help, want to do something about it, what, what can they do, how can they be effective? Well, I mean, I, I'd like to round out the, the United States by talking about the East Coast as well. Um, not that I don't love the <laughs> West Coast, um, but I'm sort of partial to the, to the East. And I just wanted to make note that one of the reasons why I feel pretty confident that we can try to get out of the partisan mess that we're in is because you have a regional greenhouse gas initiative with, with nine states and they're Republicans and, and Democratic governors. And they've recently worked together to say we're gonna lower that cap so that we can get a little bit tighter 
on emissions in, in the, on the East Coast. That's a big deal. And I think Karen's joined at the, at the local level and individual state level by lots of cities. I mean, we're talking close to 400 cities who have gotten together and set goals and have now a, a unified accounting system that they're going to produce that's going to work in concert with state level action to really go to the next um, uh, COP and, and be able to, to talk with uh, certainty about the U.S. involvement and engagement at all levels. Now remember that when we got into the environmental world, it was because of grassroots efforts. I've worked at every level of government. I will guarantee you nothing happens at the federal level until communities got very annoying, and then they forced the states to do things, and when the states get sufficiently annoying, then the federal government has the most innovative, brilliant idea, which is to do what the communities wanted in the first place. So we can't get discouraged about the lack of effort in action at the federal level because you can be active in your own communities. You can be active if you're in schools at your universities to actually make sure they're walking the walk. You can follow the business community, find out what they're doing and not doing. What are the products they're selling? Are they looking at their supply chain? Are they accounting for their own emissions? You can work with, in the city of Boston, there's a great effort to look at how not I, do I improve, but how do I actually get to zero emissions. So the world is really there for you to participate in. And when things like that happen, things go back and things get uncertain. The one thing you don't want to do is sit on your couch and watch past episodes of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I might actually want to do that, but don't. You know, you got to get out there and be active in your own communities, in your own homes, your schools, your businesses. Just get out there and do something. One of the one of the things that's, that's interesting about all of this is obviously, you know, there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of belief here. Um, there's also a lot of practicality. And you're here representing GE. GE is not interested in this, I would imagine, because it's a nice thing to do. You have shareholders that you're answerable to. What are the economic opportunities here? So we we are interested in this. You're right. We have we have shareholders that we answer to. We started this as a business strategy with EcoImagination back in 2005 because we knew that the world, with all of the great grassroots, city, state, even federal action, none of that would mean anything if the technologies didn't exist to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or reduce an environmental footprint. So, you know, just to give you a few examples, um, we have 30, we have an installed base of 30,000 wind turbines uh, out there today that are generating 160 terawatts of electricity per year. That's avoided 600 million uh, metric tons of CO2 annually. It's displaced 60 million tons of coal and another 4 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. It's great for the environment. It's also great for our renewables business and great for our shareholders. So it really did validate, and that's just one example that um, the, you know, the technology is good for the environment. It's good for our employees who love being engaged. You talk about grassroots engagement. This is really important to the 300,000 employees who work at GE every day. And it's brought in revenue. Um, we've invested over $20 billion in R&D on clean energy technologies. And that's brought in over $270 billion in revenues. So it's a great ROI. Mm -hmm. great.
Great. Um, Governor Inslee, you also have to think about the economy. You know, you run a, you run a large state. You said, you know, you, you, you have a, quite an quite a economic footprint. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about how, how that influences your, your thinking on, on climate policy and climate <coughs> solutions? Well, we in Washington State understand that we do well when there's technological uh, transformation in, in large industries. We did very well when we invented uh, the first successful commercial jet airliner, the Boeing 707. We've done very well where, when software uh, took over from, a, from an analog uh, world. And we intend to and are doing very well in this decarbonization of the world economy. Uh, this is going to be one of the largest transitions of world economy ever since when we moved from the horse to the steam engine and then to the internal combustion engine. And so the economic opportunities that are inherent when you have these big transitions are the kind of thing that Washington, uh, it's right in our wheelhouse. It's what we do. We invent, we create, we build. And so we look at this as, a, as much as a massive economic opportunity for our business growth as it is an environmental challenge. So our policies are designed to both spur the reduction of carbon uh, pollution but also to help these businesses thrive. And I gotta tell you, it's, it's working big time. Uh, the largest manufacturer of carbon fiber substrata that goes into electric cars is a company called SGL in Moses Lake, Washington. Uh, the largest uh, vanadium flow battery that's a grid scale battery. So you can hook it up to solar or wind turbines, ANS wind turbines, and store the energy when you're not using it for distribution later when the demand comes on a company in Muckleteal, Washington. That's a company that got started in the University of Washington. We helped it through my clean energy fund. And now they're selling their products around the world. One of the most efficient solar panels in the world today is building Bellingham, Washington. So we are fostering these new businesses to sell their products around the world. And I think one of the largest concerns we ought to have about the president's running up the white flag of surrender in this face of the challenge of climate change is he's handicapped our ability to, to dominate these markets. Uh, this morning's newspaper about Chinese investment in electric cars. We want to lead the world in the production of electric cars and uh, auto, uh, auto, autonomous vehicles, which we're doing in the state of Washington. So we want to be first to the post. We want to dominate these markets. And we think this is what uh, what we do in the state of Washington, and we're doing it. So we're excited about these prospects. These are dark, dark days. These are great days. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and obviously, Washington, well known for, for technology, as is, as is California. And, and with that, I'm going to bring it back down to you, uh, Karen. Um, talk about how kind of cross-sectorial approaches have, have helped um, address climate and, and provide solutions in, in California. Sure. So um, one of the things that, that uh, we started doing at the state level, actually, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger began, this was a strategic growth council. And a big part of the work that that council does is directed. And we have a climate action team. The council itself is secretary level, cabinet level um, representatives from all the various departments. And we have found that we get much greater ability to make change when everyone's at the table and sharing strategies. For example, public health is writing um, in the health aspects of various parts of transportation, general plan, any other pieces of our overall scope. 
add that particular piece, bringing in potential benefits to human health. For example, weighing the benefits of active transportation versus um, continuing with cars. And the good news is that instead of just being the people of no, the public health folks out there will know what I mean by that, we actually get to say now that everything that we do to improve climate change, to mitigate climate change, also improves human health. It's a win-win when everyone's at the table. Wonderful. Um, great. So as, uh, as we've said, this is, a, this is a political issue. Gina, you talked the, uh, about the importance of kind of that grassroots pressure and that grassroots generating the ideas that can become the brilliant federal government ideas with enough pressure. Um, this is an issue that really has broken down like so much of, of America today on partisan lines. How do we, how do we address that? Well, you know, it, it's, it's hard for me to understand how we got here, frankly, um, you, you think about it. And I think the biggest frustration I have is that we've been working on climate issues for so long, and now we're on the cusp of succeeding. We're retreating, you know, and, and the one thing I'm amazed that people haven't said is jobs, jobs, jobs. Now, I'm the environmental person. I'm supposed to, you know, be anti-job, job, jobs. You know, this is a big deal for job growth in the United States. This is where the jobs are. So it's just frustrating to me. How we got there, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure it matters as much as how we get out of this. And I think we all ask ourselves, how do we get out of the partisanship? And it's certainly not just relative to climate change uh, that, that is, is really stopping us cold in terms of moving forward, I think, as a country. Uh, but all I know is that I have worked for six governors. Five of them were Republicans and one of them was a Democrat. And each and every time when they looked at facts and science, they understood what it meant and they did what was best for as broad a constituency as they worked for. And if you're in Washington and you have been voted as a U.S. Senator or a Congressman, you have to look at what's best for the United States of America. And I think if we can get folks and remind them of that. And the weird thing is that, you know, with, with uh, the, the switch to clean energy, it, it makes the world a better place. It's actually the kind of world you want to live in. We're not asking anybody to sacrifice. We're asking them to actually do their jobs and look to the future. And the world uh, in a decarbonized world is right now a, a really uh, it may be a little far away, but the next steps are brilliant. The next steps are beautiful green spaces, cleaner air. I mean, I look at poor Karen and I have to say, I'm, I'm just, I think about you all the time. Um, I, I, if people, you know, you people in the audience, most of you, unfortunately for me, aren't as old as I am. You didn't see what Los Angeles used to look like. And you look at Beijing and wonder what's the matter. Well, Los Angeles used to look like Beijing a long time ago, before we invested in the technologies of the future. And, and Los Angeles is looking like that today. You know, we cannot let this happen. And it's because of the fires that are raging. And if you don't like that, then you have to do something to change it. And it's called working for the benefit of all of us, not the benefit of a red or a blue state or your own state. It's really all of us, in fact, very much the world. Now, politics is, is often driven by, by belief, by passions. Um, but underlying this particular 
issue is is science. Um, Ari, how do we um, how do we get the the science heard and, and get people, regardless of what they believe about how to address this, to at least agree on the the underlying facts, agree on what's what's happening? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Probably one of the most important ones we can attack in this in this arena because the science is is pretty clear, and yet we see situations in which people, for whatever reason, say that's not reality. And so you really have to engage in that to figure out how to make progress. I mean, there's great examples, as we've heard about, in states that are on board, but there are a lot of states that are not. Uh, and so one of the ways that I've thought about that as a pediatrician, as someone who's been engaged in public health, is that you can talk about any number of potential arenas that climate touches on, economic, which I think the jobs argument is brilliant. You talk about ethical issues. Um, the religious communities of, of the country have been very engaged on that. Uh, you can talk about aesthetics, about how this transforms people's understanding of the places they've come to know. But the health argument is, is key. I, I have yet in my practice as a pediatrician to meet the parent who, when told that something is harming their child's health, say, let's not, let's not deal with that. <laughs> uh, so I think it's crucial that we do an even better job of making clear what's at stake, not just for the health of populations, but what's at stake for the health of individuals where they live. And I think there's a, you know, one of the delusions that's out there among many is that climate change matters for 100 years from now, and it matters for people on the other side of the planet. And, you know, tell that to the people in Houston. Uh, tell that to the people in Miami. Tell it to the people in California. Um, it's a little hard to stomach that argument. And so I think honing the health arguments to make sure that we understand where people are at and making sure we understand what those messages that matter to them are on the table will be essential to breaking through the partisan issues. Because in my experience on any number of issues, when the health arguments are made clear, a lot of the partisanship falls away. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Houston and, and Florida. I mean, this has been a, a hurricane season that we've seen, you know, 10 named storms in a row. We've seen three Category 5 storms, which is dramatic, um, a dramatic illustration of this. Uh, Karen, you have in California deadly wildfires raging right now. Um, Karen, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things that California is doing to, to build resilience and to cope with, cope with the climate change that is, that is happening or the weather events that are happening currently that you're seeing? Well, there's a, a number of things going on. We're leveraging the technology available to us to um, look at the state as a whole and zero in on the communities that are at greatest risk from the outcomes of climate change and then directing investments in that area. But doing that in a way that puts that community's concerns at first so that the prioritization for what gets done is driven by the community rather than by the state or by some other entity. And I think it's that ability to really focus on what communities need because um, by many years as I've come to respect that communities actually know what they need to be stronger. And really resilience, building resilience is about people understanding the threat, understanding what the assets that they have are, and then they can tell you what they need and working to how you create a sustainable change. And so we're doing that in many different from transportation planning to um, in public health specifically, we're providing local health departments with climate risk assessments and vulnerability analyses that then they're building into their emergency plans, several of which are currently activated actually in some of our counties um, where we're focusing on that. The key for me is that climate is inevitably, um, the effects are, are worsening existing inequities in our society. And if we can um, do anything to 
those inequities now, we're automatically resilience for um, worsening effects over time. Great. Well, we've covered a lot of territory so far, and I wanted to uh, now take a little bit of time to take some questions maybe from online or from here in the room, whichever one we want to uh, start with first. Yes, thanks, Scott, and thanks, everyone. I think we'll, we're going to start with online because we do have a lot of questions. Um, let's see, why don't we start with this one. Many companies see opportunities in clean energy. Wouldn't you say that an equal number or more feel that their futures could also be threatened by climate science findings. I think it's actually very difficult to assess the direction of the business community overall on the issues. Can you comment on this? I guess that's I'm for assuming you, you're, you're <laughs> It wasn't directed to you, but the yes. spokesman for the entire <laughs> business community, um, which is which is a daunting uh, responsibility. I, look, what I can share is is my perspective and our experience, which is that the overwhelming, um, I'd say the overwhelming weight of the business community actually sees not only opportunities as, you know, if they happen to be like GE, a provider of the technologies, but from the user perspective, they see clean energy technologies as solutions for the future, saving them hundreds of millions of dollars, giving them, in the, in the context of power generation, more energy security, more stability in the United States, less reliance on foreign sources of fuels. Um, but it's also, if you think about our, you know, our business's employee population, um, the, the, the next generation of employees coming in, they care about this. This is, this is personal. So my perspective is, no, the overwhelming majority of the business community sees clean energy technologies, whether it's transportation, power generation, um, as, as the future and, and not a threat and that there are great opportunities or great cost savings depending on where you sit. And it's the right thing to do. Might I just add something on that? It was really interesting the way you phrased that question because it said something like, we're threatened by what science is telling us. Th that's what the question well, said. Well, that yes. doesn't mean you stick your head in, in the ground and, and not face it. You know, I, I, and I think, let me just let you off the hook on one, one part because cl <laughs> clearly I know some of this may be directed at, at EPA and, and the fact that um, there's sort of this war on coal mantra. So let's, let me just hit that for a second. You know, the, they're, they're, I think people are, many people are seeing that if I accept the facts of climate science, that it will be to my disadvantage. And I understand that. Every transition and every lesson you learn moves you in different paths. I think it's, it's, it's about time that this country, however, you know, embraced climate science and looked at the future, but faced the reality that there are some people who will need to be transitioned as well and help. Their communities need help. I think that the thing that bothers me the most is denying the science is not the way to address the issue. And saying that we're going to go back and resurrect coal in the marketplace is not the issue. It's helping the individuals in those communities to find an economy for them that works. And in this country, if we can't do that, then shame on us. 
and, and so, sorry, I don't feel at all big, you know, <laughs> that this is a big deal. But to no, that point, you. there is going to be a transition period. Yes. I mean, coal is not going away tomorrow. Natural gas is not going away tomorrow. There is going to be a transition. There are clean coal technologies right. to get us through that. But, but there is going to be a transition. And we've, you know, you think about it, we're in the fourth industrial revolution. There's, there's a transition that goes with that as well. Great, thank you. I'll, I'll take another one from online and then we can go to our audience. We'll come back to online because we do have a number of them. Um, we've had a couple questions about the grid. Um, here's one from Rick Reibstein. How do we use the processes of the Public Utility Commission to bring about the modernization of the grid that will not pose barriers to clean energy development? How do we overcome the failure of the system to counter the forces of inertia that are now seeking to stop the growth of solar with caps, the removal of incentives, and misuse of the interconnection process? Ari can take that one. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Inslee could be on the hook for that too. <laughs> well, let, let, let me let me jump in on the grid. And this is a very important question. We have to have public policies that will create incentives for grid operators to go to a more distributed uh, generating capacity, because we know that's the future of renewable energy. And right now, we our uh, our uh, our feed-in tariff. Uh, uh, policy that essentially creates an incentive to allow consumers to generate their own electricity is an extremely important thing to do. And the net metering policy that we have allowed us to run our meters backwards, a friend of mine just showed me a video on his iPhone of his meter running backwards, is something we're going to have to have if we're going to have a distributed system. And this is a significant change, and people should not uh, belittle a uh, how uh, transformative that is, because heretofore, our business model of utilities have been on selling more electricity. And the idea of selling less and helping their consumers to transition to a more distributed system is a fundamental change in a business model. But we have to de develop policies to allow that and inspire that and encourage that and enable that, or we won't be able to maximize the use of solar energy. Now, we're doing this in the state of Washington and in California, where we have incentive programs for consumers to be able to purchase solar power, but we have to couple that with the net metering rules that allow them to essentially feed back into the grid. And there's a little political tension you, when you do that, but it is absolutely necessary, and it's being extremely effective. Look, the price of solar panels is going down by about 50% every two or three years. As I've said, and I loved when Gina talked about jobs, the jobs in the solar industry are growing 17 times faster than the rest of the United States economy. <coughs> the, the last point I'll make is, for us to be able to fully utilize a distributed system, we have to improve our, uh, our battery technology and our storage capability. And we're doing that. Uh, uh, a clean energy fund that we established, that I helped establish in Washington, has spun off a company right now that is selling these vanadium flow batteries that allow you to scale up renewable energy and have grid-based storage. California is doing the same thing under their battery storage and incentive program. So if we do these things, uh, we're going to change the world, and we're doing it right now. Great. Thank you for addressing batteries. It's such a huge issue. 
and we've had some questions on that. I will take one more from online, and then because we do have a number. Um, this is from Eric Kulish, who is a Washington staff reporter for Automotive News. What is your reaction to the Trump administration reopening the review of pas passenger vehicle fuel economy standards for early next decade? What is, in your opinion, the automaker's motive in seeking the second look, and is there data that was overlooked that will now be analyzed that could lead to an objective determination to change the standards? Me? I think that's yours. Me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> that was a very simple answer to the question. Um, I, I, th I think that they have indicated, we did take a look, um, we, I did when I was at EPA take a look at the data on whether or not we were too aggressive in earlier standards <coughs> for later years that we established for, for, uh, for cars for greenhouse gas and fuel economy standards. And my determination then was that it was even easier now because it was more cost effective given uh, continued um, uh, progress on the technology side and many more options. You know, I, I think it's, uh, I think really honestly some of it I wonder if it wasn't just you know, they're so used to asking for things that they may have gotten more than they wanted. You know, I, I honestly think that most of the, the car companies are going to FASA pass where we expected them to be because we didn't anticipate this kind of progress on electric vehicles. And when you bring that into the system, it opens up tremendous opportunities. And when you see that, that GM is announcing that they know there needs to be real transformation in the sector, I think you. I think you can guarantee that it's. It's. Uh, they're, they're probably going to do th with what the utilities are doing, which is going further and farther than we ever anticipated. Because many of the the states are FASA passing, where the clean power plan was asking them to be in 2022 and 2024. So, uh, so technology is changing, and once the direction moves, I think it moves more quickly than we usually anticipate. And I think that's going to be the same here. And it's, it's a, uh, it, one of the things is you, you also have to realize that, as Ian indicated, the business sector needs certainty. The uncertainty being brought to the system now is not beneficial to long-term investment, and it's not beneficial to the business sector. And it's the same with the, with the car industry. You now have car uh, makers who are, uh, uh, with other advocates, opposing a reopening of these standards because they need seven to 11 years to redo model years. They don't have time to sit around and see if it gets changed. And so I, I think you're gonna see things settle out okay. And it may be sort of like a little kid that, that's looking at their birthday cake and they, they're gonna get a big slice, but they ask their mother if they can eat it all and the mother said yes. They're sick now. Uh, and the mother probably shouldn't have done that. Thank you. <laughs> That's about it. Everybody goes into the president and asks for everything to be done. And, and he said yes. Oops. <laughs> Thank you. Should we see if anyone in the audience has a question? Hi. Thank you. Um, the science agrees on the problem, but not necessarily on prioritizing the solutions. And the Paris Agreements answer a few percentage points, some estimated 1% of the total challenge. So do you think that the broader discussion on alternatives is necessary from fourth generation nuclear energy to phasing out the meat industry, which emits more greenhouse gases than all transportation related emissions? I can take a crack at that one. Go. So 
Uh, it's a great question. You know, the point that the science is clear, we have a problem, and that a, there's a general sense about what we need to do in terms of overall emissions to prevent even more problems. Um, I think that the simple answer is that there needs to be a price on carbon, and we need to let the market do its job. The challenge has been with putting a price on carbon is that it frankly ignores a lot of the health consequences. So the social cost of carbon, which is you know the, the entity that's supposed to include all costs related to carbon emissions, has only been able to estimate a fraction of the health costs. And so we need a price on carbon. We need a fair price on carbon that's going to be stimulating enough to get the market to respond and give certainty to the market. But we also need one that's not going to fool us into the belief that if we set this price, we're actually going to prevent really bad things from happening to people. And that's, to me, as, as someone who's interested in public health, what we need to work on. So to me, the issue isn't so much about whether it's nuclear or wind or solar, because I think there's a lot of calculus there. I think the market just needs a steady signal that is the right signal to make that change happen. I, can I just push back on that a little bit? I, I mean, I think in a utopian world, that would be great. You'd have a price on carbon, and it would be set at the right level. The experience, I think, of the last 10 years shows that that's just not going to happen. Um, and in Europe, where you tried to set a price on carbon with the ETS system, it was so low it didn't do anything. So I think the answer has to be um, the market, but it has to be really driven by customer demand and then the technologies. And that's why you have companies investing in the technologies. And it should be, excuse me, at least on an interim basis, it can't pick winners and losers because we don't know what those winners and losers are going to be. So you need to let um, the marketplace have a free flow of technologies and options, and the best are going to rise over time. But I think if we wait for the price on carbon, we're going to be waiting for another 10 or 20 years, and we can't afford to do that. We already have them. <laughs> so in California and in the Reggie program, we have a price on carbon. I, I know there are prices on carbon all over the place. But I'm just saying they're n that's not, I don't believe, what's driving the changes in technology and the real the real outcomes. I, I mean, they're, they're a factor, but they're not the driving factor. So if you look at Reggie, for instance, we've seen a tremendous growth in economic uh, gains and health benefits as a result of those policies, which have put a price on carbon. In California, we've seen a tremendous uh, incentivization of renewable energies that have improved health. These are all setting. Now, I agree in the national politics right now that seems difficult, but I think that there's a role to play for having by, by mechanisms that are, you know, up to people who do other things than I do, but be it a cap-and-trade or a carbon price that's based upon a tax and dividend, the state of Massachusetts is considering such a bill and other states have as well. Um, I think that provides the kinds of uh, regulatory environment that could be, could be useful in this circumstance. Can I just point useful, out there's, a, com there's, there's a common answer that you, bo you both have sort of expressed to the question, and your question presumed that the role of government is to make choices, and it isn't. <laughs> I, I, the, the role of government is to set a, uh, a, a playing field that allows the winners to win, and that win should be based on how well it protects public health and the economy and, and everything. So I think I don't want to accept the premise that anyone is picking winners and losers. And I think there is some effort uh, going on now um, to actually do just that. And, and I think that that can skew the market in a way that may not be an appropriate thing to do. And we have to be careful about it. I find there's always unintended consequences. It's just like an ecosystem. If you think of systems approaches, you've got to know how the whole thing works. If you change one lever 
and you don't know what it does, the system can become dysfunctional. And I think there's a real threat to that. Well, one question I'd like to actually get your, your, all of your takes on building off of this is, he laid, the questioner laid out you know, a range of from palatable to maybe for many people less palatable options. You know, the idea, I believe you said phasing out the, the meat business, I think that would be one that would be a very hard sell for the, the American people. Can enough get done through choice? people picking the, the, the things that they want to do to, to solve the problem or to address the problem in a meaningful way. I, I don't think it's... Can I, can I jump... Yep. Can, can I jump in the previous discussion about a price on carbon? I think one of the things that we, uh, we fail to realize is the assistance we can give people to help them make choices that they want to make a price on carbon is not just a disincentive to use carbon. It is a way to create an assistance for people to finance the things they'd like to do, which is to have a cleaner environment and buy products that are cleaner. And one of the things we've found, and, and I think the answer is yes to your question, we can have it all, so to speak, if we can allow people the way to economically finance some of the capital needs that go into transforming uh, their infrastructure, uh, transitioning from an internal combustion engine to an electric car, transitioning to a coal-based uh, grid access for electricity to a distributed solar panel on their on their roof, transitioning from an old leaky uh, energy inefficient home to one that has enough insulation not to waste heat. Being able to help people finance that is a fundamental challenge. And if we do that, I think we are going to be able to make this transition because in fact, we are. Uh, the uptake of solar and electric cars in my state is profound. When we do these little things to help them, we just passed a solar incentive bill this year, an electric car incentive, and we're getting tremendous response from the public because once you help them over these little capital costs, they find out that the long-term costs are very low. We just bought 100 electric cars, and they cost something like half or two-thirds to run as much as they would on a gasoline car, but you need to get the capital to help them make that original investment. So I think we ought to be bullish on this, and, uh, and that's why a carbon price is helpful to be able to finance, help these people finance this capital cost. Great. Okay. And with that, I think we're going to bring this to uh, what we call the lightning round. The um, no pressure, but um, your one idea to save the world briefly um, regarding this problem. Uh, Gina, we'll start with you. One idea. Um, uh, okay, let, let me give the one idea that I always end with when I talk about these issues, because mostly I talk to college students and, and try to keep them their, their hopes and dreams alive because they can get very depressed at times like these because it's unusual for them and it's not for the rest of us unfortunately. But uh, here's my one thing uh, and that is that you should listen to some words of my father. He haunts me every day and he's gonna haunt you now. <laughs> and the, he used to say two things to me. He used to say, Gina, he didn't really care what I, what I ended up being when I grew up, but he always said, you've always got to fight the good fight. That's the issue. Fight the good fight. And the second thing is, when I used to whine a lot, he used to say, uh, uh, 
Gina, can you just pull up your big girl pants and do something? And so what I'm telling all of you is, pull up your big girl pants, your big girl, big boy pants, and your gender neutral pants and do something. Don't just sit there and mope. That's it. Great. Governor Inslee. Everyone uh, in the United States who's a citizen has a very powerful tool. We all are equal in this regard, regardless of our station of life, and as we get a vote. And that's a precious right. And I would suggest that we, uh, we a decision. We do not vote for people who embrace racism. We do not vote for people who embrace misogyny. And we do not vote for climate deniers. And if we all reach that agreement, good policies are going to get adopted. Great. Aaron. So uh, we've heard a lot about partisanship and how the nation seems divided, and I think about that a lot because I've, you know, the progress on this issue has not been as fast as I think many people would want. And you also look at other things that have happened in recent days. As a pediatrician, there have been rollbacks of pesticide protections, water protections, mm -hmm. and I ask myself, so why, why are we doing this? What's going on? Why, are we, why, why do we have governance that's essentially acting not in the people's interest? And if you really take a minute to think about that, you realize that, you know, there's a lot of money in politics that's not speaking on behalf of the people. So we all do get a vote, but we're all being told to hate each other. We're all being told that the other person is stupid. We're all being told the other person's arrogant. We're all, and, and, and from people who have the position to do that. So I think when we look at all these issues, we need to seriously consider how we fund and spend money in political campaigns. And I think while that's not the immediate solution to the issues we face, it underlies a large share of what we're facing. And, and let's not kid ourselves. For all the amazing work that goes on in this school of public health, the medical school, the schools of public health and medicine, and the amazing potential that that knowledge <laughs> sets, uh, makes possible, um, it's only as good as the governance with which it meets. And if we don't have uh, public servants who can act in the interest of the public, that knowledge will not meet its full potential. So I think it's, it's really important for us to consider. Six billion dollars were spent in the last campaign cycle on elections in this country. Six billion dollars. So whose voice is that representing? And I think the answer is obvious. It's not equal. So we need to think about how that plays into these decisions that are, in my view, clearly not interest, uh, in the interests of people's health in this country. Okay. Dr. Smith. Yeah, so I think um, these are complex problems and they're going to require complex solutions. And so rather than wasting time when um, you're having arguments about what's the best thing to do, we need to do all of the above. And everyone who has an interest in this can find partners who are taking a slightly different approach. If we all do that together collectively, we have a much more powerful impact. Great. And that leaves it with you. So I get really frustrated when the environment is characterized as a partisan issue. It is not and it shouldn't be. And I think every single one of us has to create our own policy and can't just simply delegate it to others and then hide behind that as an excuse for inaction. So I bookend what Gina said. Um, this is on all of us and it's activism, but even more importantly, it's solving the problems. And they are complex problems that require really complex and global solutions. So let's get to work. Great. That wraps it up. I want to say thank you to all of our panelists here and remotely. Thank you to the audience in the room. And thank you to all of you who are watching this online, uh, both live and later on. And I'd encourage you to, uh, to come back next week for another uh, important conversation <coughs> here at the forum, this one eradicating polo.
polio, excuse me, the last mile. <laughs> That'll do it. That's, that's a whole other set of problems. Um, that's going to be presented jointly with NPR on Friday, October 20th, at special time from 11 a.m. to noon so that they have time to get a polo game in afterwards. <laughs> This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.